evolution, mysticism, and the power of sunset. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. We've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Ask Science Mike! Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer questions about science, faith, and life. August the 8th and 9th, I'm going to be in Fort Worth, Texas at the Collective Church uh, talking about doubt, but also doing the first ever Ask Science Mike Live. If you'd like to be a part of that, come see us in Fort Worth. Information is on the website at AskScienceMike.com. But for now, let's get it started. Hey, Science Mike. Austin here. I'm loving the show. And I just had a quick question about evolution. I was raised in a Christian home and told my entire life that evolution was nonsense, but my beliefs are changing. Go figure. That being said, I still do not have a proper understanding of how evolution works or how we got here, and I'm sure a lot of Christians feel the same way. When I speak about the subject to other Christians, a lot of times they will say things like, it's ridiculous to think that we came from monkeys. Upon a little bit of research, On my part, it seems like we did not come from monkeys, but that monkeys and Homo sapiens simply share a common ancestor, and that each one of us took a different path in our evolution. Could you explain that a little bit more and give a clearer picture on how evolution works for those of us who want to believe, but it's foreign to us because of our traditional upbringing? (laughs) Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. I get so many questions about evolution on the program, and that makes a lot of sense because the data I've seen, some of the research that I've seen, tells us that one of the number one reasons that people leave their faith behind is that they begin to accept the theory of evolution via natural selection, and their faith community does not. And that point of difference in opinion is one of the best statistical predictors for when people will leave church when they'll leave their faith communities behind. So evolution's a big deal in faith. It's a conversation we need to have, and the number of questions I get on the program about evolution reflect that. Now, let's debunk a few evolution myths really quick uh, before we get into exactly how evolution happens. And I also want to mention that we did an episode, I think it's episode two of the Liturgist podcast, on evolution. Uh, We'll be going to the topic with much more detail and uh, only a few glaring scientific errors on my part. (laughs) Uh, So first of all, a couple ideas in evolution. Number one, absolutely everyone is an evolutionist. There's no such thing as a person who does not accept evolution because evolution is simply a scientific word for change. Everything evolves. You're evolving as this podcast happens because you are changing You are not the person you were when you were four years old because you have evolved. The controversy here is not over evolution, but instead Darwin's theory of evolution via natural selection. That's the controversy. Two, evolution does not explain how life appeared on Earth. Evolution has nothing to do with how life appeared, but merely how a diversity of life appeared from a common origin on Earth. 
Number three, evolution does not say that humans descended from monkeys or anything like that. Uh, as alluded to in the question, uh, both monkeys and humans are modern descendants of some common ancestor. And in evolutionary theory, the closer you are related to another animal is the more recent you branched. And we'll talk about that a little more when we talk about the mechanisms of evolution. Finally, number four, evolution is not just a theory. A theory in science with a capital T is different than a theory in pop culture. A hypothesis is an idea in science that is being tested, that has not been falsified or supported with evidence yet. A theory in science is a large body of accepted facts that you can base further work upon. Now, in science, all knowledge is provisional. Any facts can be changed by further evidence. But basically, when scientists give something a capital T theory, they're saying you can trust this. And to illustrate that, look at the theory of gravity. We actually have more evidence to support Darwinian evolution than we do gravity. For example, we don't even understand how gravity works at a quantum level, and yet no one jumps off buildings because gravity is just a theory, right? We accept that gravity exists because we observe it, which is also why we accept evolution via natural selection. Now here specifically in a very simplified overview how evolution works. DNA is the building block of life. RNA, uh, potentially, and very simple things like viruses. But, but mostly, uh, for the purposes of this discussion, DNA is the basis of all life. And DNA copies itself um, using components in a cell, including RNA, to make uh, copies of itself to make new cells, which in the case of cellular life, single-celled life, makes new organisms, or in the case of multicellular life, just keeps populating tissues. Now, DNA is really good at copying itself, and there's even these tiny little machines that run along your DNA, like uh, train cars on a train that check for errors when uh, DNA gets copied. It's really wild, and it helps reduce the number of errors that happen, but errors still happen sometimes when DNA is copied. And enough of those problems in an adult, for example, may manifest itself as skin cancer when your skin's DNA has become so damaged that cell growth mechanisms become unchecked. Other times, these kind of errors are called mutations, and they happen during reproduction. So because of some failure in copying or some environmental problem or whatever, the DNA that was copied from a parent to a sex cell like a sperm or an ovum has a change. A little bit of data gets garbled. And sometimes these mutations are bad. Other times they're benign. They don't do anything or they do something that doesn't really affect the organism for good or bad. And sometimes they're beneficial. And a lot of that depends on the environment, right? Uh, in humans, uh, mutations that create lighter skin are advantageous in northern climates where there's less sun exposure but disadvantageous towards the equator where there is more sun exposure. So how good a mutation is depends on the surrounding environment. And since environments change, evolution helps organisms deal with changes in the environment. Now, we all know this happens. We see organisms adapting to local conditions through DNA changes. Now, 
if you have a mutation that doesn't really line up with your environment, you're going to be less likely to breed and pass on your genes. If it's a positive change, you're going to be more likely. If it's a benign change, it's not going to affect your chances of reproduction. And so over time, beneficial changes tend to spread more, and that's how evolution works. Now, how do you get different species? Well, you can imagine that as groups adapt to their environments and different populations spread, they can get separated. Uh, Rivers may appear. We're talking about over eons, incredible periods of time. And when those groups are no longer able to breed with each other to share their DNA, their DNA can drift to the point where they're no longer compatible enough to create a new organism. Sexual reproduction becomes impossible. At that point, you have new species. So chimpanzees and bonobos uh, are very recently related. In some cases, they can still even interbreed successfully. Um, but, you know, this is a, a two species that have recently branched from each other. You go back a little bit further, and we diverge from chimpanzees. You may not be aware that there's actually more evolutionary difference between African elephants and Indian elephants than humans and chimpanzees. That's how closely related we are. Now, you look at these small changes over time, and they are small, and you wonder how something as marvelous as an eye could be created, for example. And here's kind of how that would work in evolution. You start out with a mutation. Uh, You've already got skin on an organism that's sensitive to heat, which is nothing but a form of light. Heat is nothing but infrared light. That's how you experience heat energy. And so through a mutation, skin that's already sensitive to heat becomes sensitive to red light. It's just a slightly different wavelength of electromagnetic energy and that benefits the species by being able to move between lighter and darker places, which may help it find plants which feed on light, for example. And then another mutation occurs and more and more frequencies of light become detectable to this skin. And the next thing you know, it's not a skin, it's an eye patch like we see on flatworms. And then, you know, over time, these eyes keep getting a little bit better because each mutation makes that worm more likely to reproduce until finally you have fish with very advanced eyes. And here's the funny thing. We know that life on land came from life in the sea. And because of that, our eyes, modern human eyes, are actually adapted fish eyes. (laughs) And what's funny about that is our eye structure in fish works perfectly. You don't have focus issues at very close distances or very long distances. But our eyes have focus issues close. Why? Because our eyes have to carry around a little pocket of water on their lens in order to be able to function because that was a, a favored adaptation as reptiles and amphibians and other similar organisms began to crawl on the ground. Those who could see better out of the water could avoid predators and find prey easier. Do you see the incredible fact here that it is tiny, tiny changes over millions of years that result in everything we see. Now, if you'd like to learn more, I have a link to our liturgist episode on evolution on the show notes at AskScienceMike.com. I'll grab a few other uh, overviews of evolution as well that may include some visuals and be easy to follow. Um, But this is an important question because like I said, 
the younger you are, the more likely you are to accept the theory of evolution and the more likely you are to leave your faith behind as a result. Hey, Mike. My name is Graham. I'm from Portland, Oregon. Uh, I have a question about sort of liminal spaces, specifically uh, dawn and dusk, those times of day when light gets not fully gone, but not fully here. Um, I'm curious why we seek out those experiences. Why do we go find sunsets? Why do we get up early to watch sunrises? Is there some sort of scientific basis that the light does something to our brains? Is there maybe an evolutionary understanding of those were the best times of day to hunt or survive. I'm not really sure. So uh, I would love to hear the scientific basis for why those specific times of day seem to have some sort of meaning uh, correlated to beauty or transcendence. Um, looking forward to hearing what you come up with. Thanks. I don't know. There's some definitive scientific explanation uh, to our predilection for sunrise and sunsets that's separate uh, from other types of natural beauty we tend to seek out other than the fact that sunsets and sunrises are pretty predictable we know they happen every day in most of the world um sorry far north um and we also know that uh these represent a shift change that nocturnal animals are ending their waking pattern in an opposite sequence that dineral animals like us are in now we are tropical apes. We're one of the best large-bodied mammals in the world at expelling heat energy and dealing with high temperatures. And you would imagine that it was advantageous to our ancestors to be very active as the first light appeared uh, and to become active again as the light dwindled because there was less heat to deal with. Uh, so you can imagine there being a draw to us there. During the heat of the day on the African continent, probably best for our ancestors to sit in the shade and wait for cooler temperatures in order to do their foraging and hunting. Now, we do know that humans have a bias towards wide open natural spaces and that those spaces tend to evoke awe in us and wonder. And we also know that we find novel environments beautiful because we're born explorers. That's why we like to see beautiful sites we've never been to before. It scratches some itch in us, some wandering need. That's why we travel. That's why we love vacation. Humans love a change of scenery. Some other animals find that uh, stressful and anxiety-inducing, but not Homo sapiens. We naturally love to travel. Now, it's also interesting when we consider an outdoor space at sunrise and sunset because based on our atmospheric composition, all the blue light gets scattered out of a sunbeam, which is normally white light, at sunset and uh, sunrise. And uh, that means the light is very red-tinged. Now, our circadian rhythms, the, the energy cycle of our brains and bodies, is highly tied to our perception of blue light. So blue light tends to make us awake, makes it hard for us to sleep. Uh, and sets our body's clocks. Red light is much more gentle. And so if you're waking and in sort of a sleepy state, uh, a gentle sunrise is going to help slowly draw you into a more wakeful period, as well as a red sunset is going to help you slowly move into a more restful state for the night. 
Um, so there may be something special about sunrise and sunset in any beautiful natural environment in that it is easier to enter a, a calm or restful state in the presence of all this red light and the relative absence of blue light. I wonder if that might be a factor. We're also, you know, we're very drawn towards wood fires, for example. Those, that's another form of generally very red light. You know, you can sit around by a fire and go, you know, pr- pretty quick to sleep afterwards compared to watching a television because of the abundance of red light and the relative lack of blue light. So I don't know if this might come down just to hue of light plus natural vista equals bliss for many humans. I know it does for me. I love sunrises and sunsets. These days, I'm such a morning person, it's probably easier for me to catch a sunrise. (laughs) I get pretty sleepy as the sun starts to go down. But that's a great question. Now, when we think about liminal spaces or thin spaces, spaces where we feel closer to a spirit world, it's interesting that those spaces tend to incorporate the physical qualities in the natural world that provoke awe, wonder, or mystery. So the Grand Canyon is is awe-inspiring, and uh, sunset at the beach or in the mountains is awe-inspiring. But when we go into a cathedral, for example, they're architected so that there's a massive space that encourages you to look up. They're generally lit with candles or other red forms of illumination. And the artificial spaces that we consider liminal seem to incorporate these themes into their design and help our brains find that otherworldly, mysterious, beautiful, awe-inspiring quality. You know, I doubt that uh, the architects of medieval cathedrals had access to neurological research, but on some level, they took notice of the cues in the natural world that led them to awe and tried to create spaces that would do the same for other people in the context of God, uh, which is fascinating and beautiful And, uh, you know, we tend to have this kind of superiority complex going on as modern humans. We think that the ancients or or our predecessors were foolish or less wise than we are, Uh, but they did quite well with the information that they had. So I hope that future generations are more gracious towards us than we are towards our own ancestors. Our last question this week is actually two questions. It's a two-for-one question special. The first one comes from Twitter using the hashtag AskScienceMike. Radian21 asks, How can one build foundational, rational certainty that the story of the Christian God represents reality? Which is, boy, that is (laughs) one heck of a tightly composed tweet. And then we have another question that came in via the email inbox that says, you mentioned almost in passing on Pete Holmes' podcast something to the effect of, we can't meaningfully talk about God before the universe because our words involving time don't apply. Something to do with the speed of light, I think, and pre- or post-singularity. Anyway, my question is, doesn't that prevent us from talking about God now? now that time is a reality, even if it is just for us, or am I missing something? Now, I paired these two questions together because they have opposite intent. The first question says, how can we know exactly who God is? How can we know that the Christian God, the God of the Bible, 
as described in Scripture, is reality, that that is the one true God. The second question leans into the mystical language and the scientific language I used to justify mysticism on You Made It Weird with Pete Holmes, relating to mystery and how difficult it is to describe God. So, in response to the first question, when you say, how can one build foundational, rational certainty that the story of the Christian God represents reality? I would say you can't. That's right. I would say you can't. I don't believe we can be certain about exactly who God is. In the second question, uh, I was talking about the difference in physics as we understand singularity, that state the universe was in before the Big Bang, before the rapid expansion, where the laws of physics were one, where time and space were one, where there may not have even been causality. My point there was our language completely breaks down describing singularity. Not only does our language break down, but our mathematics break down when we attempt to describe a singularity state. You see, even in the Bible, our understanding about God has evolved. First, God was a man who walked with us in a garden. He said that it was good, and he showed us how to live. But there was trouble in paradise, and we moved on. And next, God was a stranger we wrestled with an unknown face who looked like a man, and only after difficulty could God be known and be revealed. But God continued to grow in our eyes, and God became a burning bush that was not consumed by its fire, who said simply that I am. God continued to expand beyond just a bush, and after the people of God left Egypt, God was a pillar of cloud during the day and fire during the night that showed the people where to go in the wilderness. And after that, God dwelled in an ark that traveled with the people of God in the fields of battle and who rewarded his followers with the social currency of that time, military conquest and victory. When the people of God settled down into their own nation, God became a dwelling spirit within a temple that denoted Yahweh's rule over a specific geographic patch of the earth. And after that nation was overthrown and the people of God were in exile, God returned as a man, this time a man named Jesus an incarnate face on the mysterious spirit from the temple. But this time God spoke of a greater and more expansive love than had been part of the faith before. This time God said the most important thing is to love me, and the next most important thing is to love your neighbor, and all that I say hinges on those things. And then this man left. He ascended into heaven. And suddenly, God was a spirit that dwelled within our hearts, a universal force that dwelled not within one temple, but every body of every believer, potentially a temple everywhere in the world, everywhere humans traveled. 
but our understanding of God was not done evolving still because next, the church established God as a triune God, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Which one of these Christian gods accurately reflects reality? They all do. They are all metaphors that point to the source of all. They are all pictures of a God that somehow reaches out to us across the cosmos. There's a tendency whenever God reveals a new metaphor to his followers or her followers because we need a new picture. We tend to dismiss the old one. We tend to hold ourselves as superior to someone who understands a different metaphor for God. These days, I'm over it. That's why I'm a mystic. We're all scribbling on tissue paper with crayons. Our, all the language we have, including the language in Scripture, is woefully inadequate to describe the ground of all being and the source of all. My friend Pete Enns has a quote And it says this, It is important to remember that God always speaks in ways that people can actually understand. And so God gives us language that points to God and God's greatness and God's wonder and God's majesty and, of course, God's love. But that language is not God and never will be. I don't think in this life with these brains we will ever truly know God with certainty. Experience God? Yes. But I don't believe we will know God until we return to that source. Another week, another episode of Ask Science Mike in the books. Got a lot of announcements to cover here at the end of the show. There's a lot going on. A few things related to the liturgist. One, we're planning a a fall tour called Lost and Found. Centered around liturgy, we've created called Lost and Found. It's kind of based on our podcast by the same name, as well as some musical contributions by Gunger and the Brilliance. And it's me and Gunger and the Brilliance on stage with strings, with band, uh, leading an interactive storytelling experience about faith and doubt. We'd like to take this across the country, and we're looking for venues that can bring us in as part of that tour. Uh, Now, to be clear, we are not just looking for physical space. We have to pay for travel and uh, housing and expenses for, you know, 12 or 14 people to make this happen. So we're looking for places that will bring us in with an advance and sell tickets in order to make this possible. Uh, if that's you, go to theliturgist.com or actually go to asksciencemike.com and I'll have a link to our venue form where you can fill out a sheet and we'll get in touch with you and see if we can make it work. If not, no big deal. Um, but if you're interested in us coming to your town, that's the way That's the way we do it. Uh, we've got to bring the whole crew. Uh, we're also planning our next Belong event, which is going to be in London, November the 14th. More details We'll come out about that soon. We're also going to try to squeeze one into Los Angeles in the near future. So listen about that. And yes, I hear you on Twitter. New episodes of the Liturgist podcast are coming soon. Michael and I have both had 
just really punishing travel schedules, and it's been hard to get together and record the show. Ask Science Mike's a little easier. I can do it by myself. <laughs> That's why I haven't skipped this show. So in terms of places I'm going to be, like I said at the top of the program, we're going to do Ask Science Mike live at the Collective Church in Fort Worth, Texas in the first part of August. Uh, I'll also be going to the relevant podcast 10th anniversary party in Orlando. In September, I'll be at Forefront Church in New York City talking about sex, drugs, and violence. Uh, In September, I'll also be doing a rare appearance in Tallahassee at my church, Good Samaritan. Uh, And then we'll be going to do an online event called the Sandbox Cooperative. And that's one that everyone who listens to this program can be a part of because it's going to be live streamed on the web with an internet-based Q&A. I think that's actually pretty exciting. Now, I'd love to come see you in your town. You can go to AskScienceMike.com, click Book Mike, and then find folks at Chafee Management. We'll talk to you about how to get me to your town. Now, I do want to let you know that I'm just about out of uh, openings in 2015, and 2016 is actually starting to book up pretty well. So if you have any thoughts of me coming to your town, don't delay. <laughs> I don't want to create a sense of artificial scarcity, but my calendar is really filling up. Now, we need your questions. Keep them coming. We have some fantastic questions lately. You know, more questions are always need to keep the program going. My biggest fear is waking up one day and not having questions to answer for Ask Science Mike. And I guess I just start singing, you know, baritone pop songs, a cappella to punish you guys for not sending in questions. So please send in your questions. And I want to remind you that our show is listener supported. This literally helps me have health insurance and food at this point. The podcast is a huge part of how I make life happen. So a dollar, five bucks, 10 bucks, really helpful on Patreon. And you can change or cancel pledges at any time. Listen, I'm not a church. This is not a tie. There's no coercion. Um, Just if you've got a couple dollars and enjoy the show, I'm really thankful if you choose to be generous and offer something. Our pre-production this week was done by Haley Hyde. She picked the questions on the show. I thought they were pretty good ones. Greg Nordine does our production and sound design. And Jeb Botiford wrote and recorded the theme song. If you need original music written or recorded, Jeb's a whiz at that stuff. Thanks for listening, guys, and I will see you next week. Thank you.